Well, it's no exaggeration when I tell you this morning that I have been uh, waiting for this particular day for most of my adult life. Reformation Sunday on the 500th day of the Reformation. So I want to invite you to turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 5. There are many passages that we could turn to. There are many uh, branches of theology that we could study. But the Lord has directed uh, my thoughts this morning, particularly to Acts chapter 5. The date was June the 15th, 1520. It had been almost three years since Martin Luther had hammered his now famous 95 theses on the castle door at Wittenberg, Germany. Now on June 15th, 1520, Pope Leo X issued a papal bull. The decree called Luther's teaching a quote-unquote poisonous virus. And it demanded that Luther recant in 60 days. And if he refused to recant, he would be excommunicated. The bull was entitled Exerge Domine and had four summons built within this very important document. The four summons are like this. Rise up, Lord. Rise up, Peter. Rise up, Paul. Rise up, O saints. Leo X simply declared that Luther was a wild boar. And this wild boar was loose in the vineyard. He was a, a, a dangerous virus as well as a serpent creeping through the Lord's field. And the Pope argued Martin Luther must be stopped. His books were to be burned. And of course, you know that uh, in the 16th century, Luther's books were burning all over the landscape of Germany. And should he not recant in 60 days, the Pope said, after receiving the the bull, he would not only be excommunicated, he would be placed under an anathema. That is, he would be eternally condemned. He would be damned. On January the 3rd, 1521, Luther was finally excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church by Pope Leo X. On the 10th of December then, in 1520, 60 days after Luther had actually received his copy of the bull, he took the bull and he tossed it into the flames. This is a great photograph, an artist's rendition of Luther throwing this papal bull into the flames. Later, Luther said this about this experience. He said, quote, Since they have burned my books, I burn theirs. The canon law was included because it makes the Pope God on earth. So far as I have merely fooled with this business of the Pope, all of my articles condemned by Antichrist, that is the Pope, are Christian. Seldom has the Pope overcome anyone with scripture and reason. And so today we gather together 500 years after the original publishing of the 95 Theses and we celebrate Reformation Sunday. And I want to remind you that we, we do not celebrate the man Martin Luther. We do not celebrate the reformers. We simply celebrate the unvarnished, unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate the rediscovery of the doctrines of grace. 
And such a celebration can only mean one thing. We turn our eyes to the saving crosswork of the Lord Jesus Christ. For hundreds of years, the gospel prior to the days of the Protestant Reformation had been veiled. They had been obscured. They had been eclipsed by man-centered theology and man-centered ideology. And while there always has been a, a faithful remnant, that's something we need to remember. That even though the gospel had been veiled for hundreds and hundreds of years, there was always a, a small number. And it was a very small number of men and women who believed the gospel, who proclaimed the gospel, and who lived the tenets of the gospel. There were men and women prior to the days of the Protestant Reformation who believed in justification by faith alone. But it was, for the most part, concealed. It was, for the most part, eclipsed. And this is one of the important reasons that the Reformers coined the Latin phrase, post Tenebras lux, after darkness, light. I want to ask this morning, exactly what was it that gave Luther in particular, and also the other reformers, the courage, the strength to act with such bold resolve? Certainly, if you think about it, it was the Holy Spirit who empowered Luther and the other reformers. It was the Holy Spirit that enabled these great men of God to, to be unleashed onto a world that was hostile, for the most part, to these truth claims. And, of course, Luther and the reformers drew strength from Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 19. I, I read them in, the, in their entirety. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that grounded in love, you may, you may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Certainly it was the Holy Spirit that empowered Luther. Certainly it was the scriptures that empowered Luther. But when we dig, dig, dig even deeper, what we find in Luther is a man of unshakable biblical conviction. It was biblical conviction that led Luther to hammer the 95 theses on the castle door at Wittenberg. It was biblical conviction that enabled him to stand a few years later before the Holy Roman Empire at the Diet of Worms, where he uttered those famous words, Here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. It was sheer biblical conviction that drove Luther to translate the Greek New Testament into the common language of the day, the German language, in just 11 weeks at the Wartburg Castle. My son Nathan said something to me the other day. I didn't ask him for, for permission, but out of the blue, Nathan said, Dad, I want to go to the Wartburg. I was like, oh man, nothing made me happier. Let's go to the Vortberg. It was nine or ten years ago I actually stood in the room 
where Luther was, was hidden away by Frederick the Wise. You remember at the, at the Imperial Diet of Worms in 1521, when he uttered those famous words, Here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. He was sent off and, and on his way in the woods, a, a group of men led by Frederick the Wise kidnapped him. I put that in quotes because they made it look like a kidnapping. And they whisked him away to the Vortberg Castle where he spent over 10 months in seclusion with the pseudonym Junker George. I think I've shared in other messages or in private conversations, if I ever started a Christian heavy metal band, it would be called Junker George. (laughs) He grew a beard. He wore the, the, the regalia of a knight. And they gave him the pseudonym, Junker George. And in these days, it was sheer biblical conviction that led Martin Luther to translate the Greek New Testament into the German language. And so from Wittenberg and Worms all the way to Wartburg, we find a man who, who knows what he believes and a man who is absolutely willing to act on those beliefs. The title of the message this morning is A Reformation of Biblical Convictions. A Reformation of Biblical Convictions. And I believe, I believe that it's high time for Christ followers, especially in America, to shore up their biblical convictions. Indeed, it is time for a reformation of biblical conviction. Like Luther and like the other reformers, it is time that we know what we believe and that we act on those beliefs. The great Princetonian theologian B.B. Warfield uttered these words before Princeton went down a liberal path. B.B. Warfield said, Convictions are the root on which the tree of vital Christianity grows. No convictions, no Christianity. Scanty convictions, hunger-bitten Christianity. Profound convictions, solid and substantial religion. You see, we live in a day, and I think most of you would agree with this. We live in a day of unprecedented compromise. In a very interesting piece penned by J.C. Ryle, who was a a man who was born in 1816 and died in 1900. He was the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool in England. He wrote a little piece, and and I want to quote a a few lines from it. And it's 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 a piece that has had quite an effect on me. It's a piece you will no doubt hear from in the future. He said this, and I want you to remember that when J.C. Ryle penned these words, we're talking more than a couple hundred years ago. And see if it reminds you of the church that you know about in America. Ryle said, quote, One plague of our age is the widespread dislike to sound doctrine. In the place of it, the idol of the day is a kind of jellyfish Christianity. He said it's a Christianity without bone or muscle or sinew, without any distinct teaching about the atonement or the work of the Spirit or justification or the way of peace with God. 
He called it a a vague, foggy, misty Christianity of which the only watchwords seem to be. Remember, this is a couple couple hundred years old. The watchword seems to be, you must be liberal and kind. You must condemn no man's doctrinal views. You must think everybody is right and nobody is wrong. It sounds like he wrote that three days ago. Because that's exactly the place that we find the church in America. Of course, we all know that the world in which we live, the unbelieving world is is absolutely awash in compromise. But compromise also takes place in the church. Compromise takes place among professing believers. It's what I like to refer to as the white flag of compromise. If you can imagine with me, there are professing Christians all over the land who are hoisting up the white flag. And when the white flag gets to the top, to the very tippy top of the flagpole, it essentially announces to the world, we give up. We don't care about these issues anymore. Everybody's right. Nobody's wrong. J.C. Ryle was right. We are, for the most part, lost in a sea of, of, an, of this ocean where we, we are like the, the jellyfish without a spine. We simply give up the fight. And so that involves personal compromise. That involves financial compromise. That involves ethical compromise. It involves marital compromise. And it involves, as it involves, as Ryle indicated a few moments ago, it involves doctrinal compromise. The passage before you in Acts chapter 5 tells the story of a handful of men, a group of courageous individuals who were utterly unwilling to compromise the truth. You'll remember that when the church of the Lord Jesus Christ was established, that God's people were eyewitnesses, most notably Dr. Luke, to a, a host of events that absolutely blew him away and blew the other eyewitnesses away. These were amazing and astonishing events. By way of review, to set the context here, in Acts chapter 2, these witnesses saw the coming of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. Wouldn't you like to have been one of the men, and, men or women who were there? To witness these events unfold. Also in Acts chapter 2, we, we learn of Peter as he preached a sermon that bore testimony to the saving power of Jesus and his gospel. Also in Acts chapter 2, we find that the church is devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. The Bible says that awe and wonder came upon every soul and that many wonders and signs were being done at the hands of the apostles. Great numbers of people were being saved. The apostles we see moving into Acts chapter 4 were boldly preaching the message of the gospel. That the Lord Jesus Christ came. He was the God-man who came and lived a life that none of us could ever live. And then he died on a cross. And then he was buried. And on the third day, God raised him from the grave. And now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Moving forward to Acts chapter 5, we find the high priest and the Sadducees. They are filled with jealousy. And so they end up arresting the apostles. They throw these men in the jail. 
And in the middle of the night, it's an amazing scene here. An angel of the Lord busts them out of prison. And when he, when he frees them from prison, he says this, Go and stand at the temple and speak to all the people the words of this life. Imagine the scene. They're in this stinky prison. God breaks them out of prison. Now he says, go back and do what sent you to prison in the first place. And so at the break of dawn, Acts 5.21, they went to the temple and they taught the word of God. I want you to, to feel boldness. I want you to sense courage. I want you to, to experience great resolve as we see these men who were cast into the prison cell, God releases them. He busts them out. And now he says, go back and continue to preach the word of God. Now, when the high priest summoned the officials to bring the apostles forward, they learned that they had escaped and they were teaching the people. Can you imagine what these leaders thought? Didn't we just throw them in jail? And now I hear a report that they are preaching the word of God once again. Now look with me at Acts chapter 5, and I want to have you stand as we read these words together, beginning in verse 27. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Let's pray together. Father, on this Reformation Sunday, we uh, turn our attention to your word. And we want to thank you for the great heritage that was birthed by the the reformers as they recovered the biblical gospel, the gospel that had been believed for hundreds and hundreds of years prior to these days, but had been obscured for the most part. We thank you for the the revival that took place during the days of the Reformation. And I pray right now here at Christ Fellowship that you would bring a new Reformation, that you would bring a Reformation of truth where we place the Lord Jesus Christ once again at the center of our lives where we repent afresh for the sins that we commit, where we place the word of God as our, our highest authority, where we revere the God of the universe, where we lean into the power of the Holy Spirit, where we become gospel-centered people and people who are filled, as we will learn today, because of this amazing story with bold resolve and biblical conviction. And so may you uh, unfold the story before us, God. May you encourage us. May you embolden us. May you fill us with with courage that comes from the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that that we would leave a a built-up people, a strengthened people, an encouraged people, so that we would spread the passion for the Lord Jesus Christ all over this valley and all over the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me just say that I believe that God is looking for men and women of conviction. God expects you and I to be men and women of conviction. And I don't want to forget boys and girls either. God expects boys and girls 
and young men and young women to be people of biblical conviction. When we take a closer look at this story, when we look at Peter and the apostles, we are compelled to ask this question, exactly what was it that fueled their convictions? What were the contours of their convictions? And the answer to this question, I believe, will help us fuel our own resolve to help, our, to help in the shaping of our biblical convictions as well. Well, there were several contributing factors to the growing convictions in the apostles' lives. I believe that it was first and foremost the apostles' devotion to the Word of God that informed their convictions and fueled their convictions. One can only imagine what was running through Peter's mind and what was running through the minds of the other, the other apostles when they stood before the high priest for the second time. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if Peter were to my left and the other apostles were to my right, I'm not quite sure what they're thinking about, but here's what I'm thinking. And my suspicion is many of you would be thinking the same thing. Two words, dead meat. That's what I'd be thinking. Or we're toast. I mean, we're in big trouble. The high priest had already told us, don't do this anymore. He threw us into jail. God breaks us out. We disobey his orders. We go back into the marketplace of ideas and we continue to preach the word of God. Dead meat. They had already been imprisoned for their convictions. These men... Don't stand before the council with cavalier attitudes. They are not men who have hearts filled with pride. This is serious business because they understand that their very lives are on the line. I want to ask a kind of a personal question. Have you ever been in a, a similar situation? Not where you, you might have to die for your faith, but have you ever been in a situation where you had to stand in front of your boss and you knew that, if you told the truth, it might cost you your job. Have you ever been in a situation, young people, where, where you knew if you, if you bore testimony to the saving message of the gospel of Christ, you would be laughed out of the room? Have you ever been in a situation where, where you draw the line in the sand? You draw the line in the sand and you refuse to compromise your convictions and you know that there is a price that you will pay. I was sharing a story not too many weeks ago about a friend of mine. And he was a dear friend of mine. And he, he and I used to play tennis in the late hours. We both had jobs before we were married where we would work until 9 or 10 or 11 in the evening. And no matter how late it was, we would go to Evergreen State College in Olympia. And we would play sometimes till 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning under the lights. I mean, it was the most incredible, incredible thing. We loved to play tennis on the weekends. Well, one day it came to my attention that my friend was involved in a relationship and he was committing a, a whole series of sins that were deeply dishonoring to the Lord. And I went to my friend in a spirit of humility, as Galatians 5 warns us to do, and I I asked him and I pleaded with him to, to stop engaging in this activity, this grievous activity before a holy God. And he refused to stop. 
And I told him if he didn't stop on the basis of Scripture, and he was a professing believer, that I could no longer... I could no longer spend time with him. I had, I had to step away and essentially treat him as an unbeliever. And that was a hard thing for me to do because he was my dear friend. He was my buddy. I don't say this to scare you, but I say this to let you know the reality of the situation. Do you know that I never saw my friend again? I have no idea where he lives. I have no idea what he's doing. And I don't make that, I don't say this to make me sound uh, more righteous than anyone else. But there comes a time when you, when you draw a line in the sand and you have to say, I make this decision on the basis of biblical convictions. This is exactly where we find the apostles. But in their case, it was more than the loss of a friendship. In their case, their lives are literally on the line. The apostles' devotion to the word of God fueled their convictions. And there are three pillars that undergird their steadfast devotion to the word. I want to walk through and show you and unpack what those pillars are. And the first pillar is this. The first pillar is that the word is truth. The way that the word of God fueled their devotion and fueled their convictions is that they remembered and they believed that the word is truth. You see, the apostles didn't question the truthfulness of the word. They humbled humbled themselves before it. The apostles didn't scoff at the truthfulness of the word. They submitted to it. The apostles didn't doubt the truthfulness of the word. Rather, they were devoted to it. Yet, how often do we as Christ followers doubt the question or doubt the the authenticity of God's word? How often do we question God's word? How often do we subject the truth of God's word to a set of worldly benchmarks? And how often do we as the people of God compromise the principles in God's word? Sometimes we buy the postmodern lie that says there is no truth. Truth is relative to the community in which we participate. Or we often fall into the postmodern trap and agree with one philosopher who says it like this. He defined postmodernity as incredulity about meta narratives. Now, that might not mean an awful lot to you on the surface of it. But when someone says, and most postmodern thinkers do commit this fallacy, they say postmodernism is incredulity about meta narratives. What's a meta narrative? A meta narrative is simply a big picture. A meta-narrative is the big story. So, for instance, my suspicion is most of you believe in a meta-narrative. It goes like this. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation, when Jesus makes all things new. That really is is the Bible in a nutshell. That's a meta-narrative, yet postmodern thinkers say we have incredulity toward meta-narratives. We don't believe in a big story. In fact, we believe that anyone at Christ Fellowship who believes in a meta-narrative is an arrogant person. That's how you're being talked about. And so the way I see it is there are two options before us. Option number one is we can repudiate the truth, much like Pontius Pilate did, as he stood inches away from the way, the truth, and the life. 
Or option two is we can revere the truth like Jesus and the apostles. You remember Pilate said to Jesus, so you're a king. It just, it blows me away whenever I read that. So you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says, what is truth? He can smell Jesus' breath. And he says, what is truth? Jesus says in the high high priestly prayer then, sanctify them. That's you and I, if you're a follower of Jesus. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is what? Truth. And so the council in Acts chapter 5 says to the apostles, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. There's a man in the 16th century, a very brave man who beautifully illustrates what it means to to be grounded by this pillar that the word of God is truth. The day was February 4th, 1555. The man roped to the pyre was well known in the little British village, a a man of humble origins, a man with bold ambitions and, and a simple obedience to match, a man who dared to challenge the throne with only two simple acts. Number one, preaching the word of God. And number two, printing The Matthews Tyndale Bible. His name, and you can see him on the screen, was Mr. John Rogers. He was a faithful pastor. He was a loving father. And he was a martyr. In fact, he was the first Christ follower to pay the ultimate price during the reign of Mary Tudor. We know her now as Bloody Mary. In fact, he was the first of hundreds who would die at the hands of this bloodthirsty tyrant. Some of you know that in my Bible, and you can see that this matches the picture before you, is I keep a photograph of John Rogers in the flyleaf of my Bible. Because, as I've told you on many occasions before, whenever I feel persecuted, whenever I feel threatened, whenever I feel like the ministry is getting difficult, I just take a look at John Rogers. Because John Rogers was tied to the pyre and he was he was strapped and he was straddled into the pyre and the ropes were placed around his body and they lit the little pieces of wood and the kindling under his feet and his wife and children saw him burn to death. Why? For preaching the word of God and for printing the Matthews Tyndale Bible. Like John Rogers... The apostles believed that the word is truth. Come what will. Accuse us, mock us, ridicule us, scorn us, or kill us. We will preach the absolute truth of God's word. There is another group of brave individuals that you may have heard of. 
they have a crazy name. I remember in, in Bible college and seminary hearing about the Huguenots. Do you remember hearing about the Huguenots? The Huguenots were the French believers who were persecuted, much like John Rogers, for their unyielding conviction concerning the truth of God's word. Many of those Huguenots fled to Geneva to find refuge with John Calvin. And John Calvin would train them and equip them and teach them the word of God. And many of them would go back to France knowing that once they crossed the border into France, they would find the same fate as John Rogers. There is an inscription on a monument to the Huguenots in Paris that reads, Hammer away, ye hostile hands. Your hammers break God's anvil stands. One day I hope to see that monument and to, to stand before this monument and remember these brave men and women of God, these French reformed believers who modeled what's happening in Acts chapter 5. They said, accuse us and mock us and scorn us and ridicule us and kill us if you will, but we will not stop preaching the word of God. Why? Because we are undergirded by the truth of the word. There's a second pillar that undergirded that devotion to the word of God and the apostles, and that is the power of the word. They believed that the word of God was powerful. And so Peter and the apostles utter these absolutely amazing words in Acts 5, verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. I ask this question, how could these believers say such a thing in the heat of adversity? When in the back of their minds, they're thinking dead meat. Why? They believe the word of God was powerful. For the word of God, Hebrews says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29 says this, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? You know, Martin Luther, in the 16th century, he is a man who, who believed also in the power of the word. He said this, and this is kind of a famous quote. He says, when I read Luther, I like to, I like to kind of picture what's going on. Here he is in Wittenberg, a, 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 an artist's rendition of Wittenberg, and he was a large man, right? And I can just see him sitting back in his chair kind of like this, and he said this, I simply taught, preached, wrote the word of God. Otherwise, I did nothing. <laughs> he says, and then while I slept or hung out with my friends Philip Melanchthon and Nicholas von Amstorf. The word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Can you imagine Luther just sitting there? I did nothing. I wish I could say that in German. I'm sure it sounds really cool. And so with, with the apostles, Martin Luther is a, is a tremendous example of a man who believed in the power of the word of God. 
Do you believe in the power of the word of God this morning? Do you believe that the word has the power to transform a life? This morning in our small group, we heard a story about how the word of God transformed a life. And the word of God repeats that with thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people all over the world every day. And the word of God is doing a powerful work in some of your hearts, in some of your lives as well. The word is truth. The word is powerful. The apostles also believed that the word is authoritative. The apostles understood that when the scripture speaks, God speaks. If you're, if you're dozing off, if you're getting sleepy, this is the time to wake up. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. Do you want to hear from God? How many of you want to hear from God this morning? Is your Bible open? That will happen. If you want to hear from God, open the word of God. When Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men, they meant it. I want you to look for a moment at verse 29. If you have a highlighter, I'd encourage you to, to highlight that word obey. Highlight the word obey. It comes from a Greek word that means to obey someone in authority. The same exact word is used in verse 32. It says, we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who what? Who obey him, who obey him. Dr. Wayne Grudem says it like this. The authority of scripture means that all the words in scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Close quote. Do you know how many times, and I'm sure many of you have heard this as well, that I've heard, well, that's just your interpretation. It's the ultimate escape hatch. That's just your interpretation. When the word of God speaks, God speaks. When you hold the word of God and his authority, as, his, as his authoritative last word, it fuels your convictions. And it certainly fueled the convictions of Peter and the apostles. I wish I had the time to develop this this morning, but I don't. And I referred to it a few moments ago. One of the ways to, to fuel your biblical convictions is to embrace a biblical meta-narrative, to embrace a biblical worldview. Some of you are, are students of biblical worldview. I remember the first time I heard the word was in 1985. My favorite professor at Multnomah University said the word worldview for the first time. I'd never heard it before. And my suspicion is most of you, if you were alive at that time, had never heard it either. It was a word that began to receive more acclaim and more popularity as writers like Nancy Piercy, writers like Alistair McGrath, and writers like uh, uh, The Universe Next Door by, by Dr. Sire began to use this word worldview. And remember the word worldview, the, the simplest way to remember as you fuel your biblical convictions is to embrace a biblical view of creation. Just a thought. I'll address this to young people you're going to learn about the theory of evolution in your high schools. Guaranteed, right? 
If you want to develop a biblical worldview and creation is the first component in a biblical worldview and you believe in the theory of evolution, you're dead right out of the gate. If you believe in dialectical materialism, if you believe in evolutionary theory, let me, let me say something that's very dogmatic. There is absolutely no way that you can develop a Christian worldview. You're dead in the water. You're dead meat. And so as you fuel your biblical convictions, embrace biblical convictions about creation. Embrace biblical convictions about the fall, about the sinfulness of sin. Embrace biblical convictions about redemption, how Jesus Christ came as the, as the God-man and paid the price for all our sins on Calvary's tree. And then remember that he is coming one day and he will make all things new. He will make all things new. And that's an amazing way to develop your biblical resolve and biblical convictions. As we close, there are many, many things that short-circuit the biblical conviction that I'm arguing for this morning and the biblical conviction that God is looking for. But I think above all, one of the biggest hindrances to developing biblical conviction is fear. Fear. What will they think? What will they say? What if I don't get hired? The fear of the unknown, the fear of persecution, the fear of failure, the fear of being ridiculed. The list goes on and on and on. And there is no question in my mind. We, we tend to paint the apostles with a broad brush. But as I think of Peter and as I think of the other apostles who said, we will obey God rather than men. There must have been fear in the backs of their minds. They must have been a a group of men who struggled with some kind of fear. The apostles' devotion to the word of God, therefore, fueled their convictions. They believe that the word is truth. They believe that the word is powerful and they believe that the word is authoritative. These were the unshakable pillars that undergirded their steadfast devotion to God's word. I want to move from the Reformation for a minute, which is hard for me to do on Reformation Sunday. I struggle with it, but I want to move from the 16th century to the 18th century. Could I do that just for a moment to tell you a story that will I think be a fascinating fascinating inside look at one man who had strong convictions. I want you to think about the days when those very brave men sat down to pen a document that 100% of you know about. It's called the Declaration of Independence. Now, the individuals who signed the Declaration of Independence knew exactly what they were doing. To sign such a document was to declare themselves to be traitors to King George. You do realize that. It wasn't just, hey, we're going to sign it. We get freedom. Yip de yay. We can, you know, now we can go to a baseball game and everything's good. No, they knew that every signature meant you could go to the gallows. They could be hanged. Now, Stephen Hopkins, who is... Not a name like Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or James Madison that just rolls off our tongues. He's a more obscure writer, but he's one of the signers of the Declaration. 
Steve Hopkins of Rhode Island suffered, and I can't prove this, but I do know that he suffered from a condition. Let me back up. I think he had the same condition as me. That's what I can't prove. Some of you know, and at potlucks, I usually get someone to say, Pastor, are you okay? Or, Pastor, are you nervous? Or, Pastor, are you crying? No, 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 everything's fine. And some of you know what I'm referring to is I shake. And if I don't take my medicine in the morning, I shake. And that's for people, they think I'm upset or they think I'm nervous. No, everything's good. So I have a condition known as essential tremor. And I actually have to talk, talk to some physicians about it. I talked to an eye doctor a few days ago, a good friend of mine, and he was like blown away. You have essential tremor? That's incredible. Here's the diagnosis. You shake. That's all that it, that's how it affects me. Well, Stephen Hopkins suffered from what one writer called involuntary tremors. And I'm pretty sure we had the same thing. It is said that when he went to sign his name, he uttered these words. And I I hope this affects you the same way it affected me. Because it encouraged me and it emboldened me. He uttered these words. My hand trembles, but my heart does not. Now, if, if a man signing a secular document, as important as, as that document was and is, can say, my hand tremors, but my heart does not, how much more should you and I, as the people of God, have bold and decisive biblical convictions? May there be a reformation at Christ's fellowship of biblical convictions. May there be a reformation of biblical convictions in our country and all around the world as we send church planters out to be men of God who stand in the pulpit and preach a faithful message of the saving message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate the 500th year anniversary of the Reformation, May we, as the people of God here at Christ Fellowship, continue to treasure the biblical gospel. May our convictions never falter. And may God bring reformation and revival to our families. And may God bring reformation and revival here to our church family. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this example of of Peter and the apostles. Thanks for the example also of of other uh, men and women who have gone before us, who are bold, who have strong resolve, who have biblical convictions. God, I confess that there are times in my life, and I'm sure every person here agrees, when we have not been so resolute when it comes to biblical convictions. I pray that this story would, would lift us up, that this story would remind us the importance of being men and women of biblical conviction. And so come what will, whether they persecute us, whether they ridicule us, whether they threaten to kill us or actually do, may we model Peter and the apostles in this story. May we be men and women and boys and girls who are unashamed of the gospel. And may we do so humbly. May we do so graciously And may the lost world be able to see from our testimony that that we love 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for the chance to celebrate the Reformation, which is to celebrate the saving message of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.